Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 500 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look at the past interviews menu and the sub-menus under that. You'll find all the previous ones archived in various ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to support it in any amount, large or small, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. My guest today is Daniel Schmidt. Daniel is the creator of the award-winning film Inner Worlds, Outer Worlds, as well as the ongoing Samadhi series. He's also the founder of the Awaken the World initiative, whose purpose it is to bring the ancient teachings of samadhi back to the world for free in as many languages as possible. We'll be defining samadhi in a few minutes. Dan's approach combines self-inquiry with traditional forms of meditation so that participants have the opportunity to simultaneously realize their transcendent nature and to purify themselves of conditioned patterns. The pathless path is to realize an ever-deepening development process within the self-structure and to simultaneously realize what is always already beyond the self-structure. Samadhi is when the world that is constantly changing merges or unites with the changeless. That's a good definition. So welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me. You know, over the years, I've kind of glimpsed your movies online and thought, well, those would be very interesting to watch, but I think I'll wait until I interview this guy, which I'm sure I eventually will, <laughs> and then I'll just totally immerse myself in them. And that's what I've done over the past week, watching just about all of uh, the movies I just mentioned, which are a marvelous creation. I mean, the, the amount of creativity and uh, ingenuity that, that went into their creation is, is amazing. I, I'd like to, in the course of our conversation, let's talk about how you did them and where you got all the ideas for doing them, and, and so on. Hopefully this conversation will inspire others to watch them if they haven't done so already. It's, and you're doing more, so you know, stay tuned, everybody. Um, so how did you uh, get interested in all this stuff to begin with? Mm. So I guess all this stuff, you mean meditation? Yeah, the whole spiritual shtick yeah so uh, you know i i grew up as a catholic um you know so to me i i rebelled against every everything in the religious world um i didn't really know anything about meditation yoga um i actually thought it was complete nonsense and i i was just going about my life well actually i should back up when i was a really young child i was having experiences you know, I could lucid dream and travel at night and stuff like that. And I was very connected to the other levels or other realms. But um, that got shut down at a certain point. I kind of had to protect myself at a certain point and just kind of intuitively closed it off because um, my family thought I was being really weird. And, you know, they, they thought maybe I had schizophrenia or something. And I knew like just for self-preservation, I had to shut it down. So, so you would um, tell them like uh, these little people were in my room last night or whatever, things like that. And, and they would just things think like that. 
Yeah, well, and in like, um, yeah, like I, I would literally see angels above my sister's beds and stuff like that. But also as I was going through puberty, when the energy started awakening, I, I was having um, like a Kundalini kind of awakening experience, but I had absolutely no idea what that was or, or how to manage it or what you know, were you actually I, I, experiencing as those Kundalini things? I mean, what was, how do you know that's what it was? Now, yeah, how do you well, now in, know that's in, what it was? In, in retrospect, now I know that's what it was. But at the time, like the actual subjective experience was, um, you know, I would get this this feeling that there was there was uh, like an intelligence inside my body, basically. And, and it was... Um, accompanied by like my my ego structure at that time you know which was very undeveloped was um uh terrified it was like this this sort of visceral fear would come over my body as i was i was lying in bed waiting to go to sleep and i would know when this this energy is coming on it was like something some intelligence inside and i could feel like an energy moving up the back of the head and the crown and um and i would actually um get sort of taken over by by this energy like it felt like something moving my body around and um and it was out, like the the deepest sense of mortal terror um from the self structure's point of view so my my family would uh, my my dad would find me you know curled up in a fetal position screaming or um you know one time i i i went into their bedroom and uh and I had this profound sense of um, what what this world was and what this life was. And, and I, I got on top of them in the middle of the night. It's like like two in the morning or three in the morning and screaming, you're all already dead. You're all already <laughs> dead. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it just terrified them. They, they thought, you know, I was I was some kind of exorcist kid or something. So, wow. And uh, and and um, so I, you know, and as this went on, um, you know, I, I was very sensitive to people's reaction to it as well. So I realized this is not this is not going well. And, uh, <laughs> I need I need to basically shut this down. You know, whatever's going on. When I shut it down, um, and I'm not sure how I did that. I just I kind of willed with my ego to shut it down. So I lost that childlike capacity to explore in my dreams and i used to be able to fly and all that kind of stuff and and um and i, I would have these amazing encounters so all of that disappeared at that time as well and i just became like a normal kid or like well, i guess people who knew me might not say that but but uh, comparatively normal two quick observations here one is i'm sure you've heard that um Kundalini experts say that Kundalini can have awoken in previous lives and then we die and when we are reborn it's already awake and it just kind of resumes yeah. its its process. Yeah. Um, so there's and that. I yeah, totally agree with that. And and it, that, to me that there's something that was happening that um you know it's it's like this this um pattern of awareness you know like somehow there the, the whole experience was accompanied by you know this this way of perceiving my inner world that um it's it's like my consciousness would just start to get locked into the inner world and and observing inner energy in a certain way and i i didn't learn that but it was like it came with me somehow it was like a switch got turned on and and it yeah it was that pattern was just there yeah know? yeah 
We're just picking up where you where you left off. Um, and then another thing I'm sure you've heard is that, um, you know, when the energy rises like that, the ego can feel threatened because it faces dis- dissolution. You have like stories like Suzanne, Suzanne Siegel, you know, Collision with the Infinite, if you've ever read that book, um, where there's just abject terror because everything you know yourself to be is, is being dissolved. And if you don't know what's going on, it can be real scary. Yeah, yeah. The the terror that I experienced was was like, you know, I can't explain how palpable it was. It was it was like primordial terror. It wasn't it wasn't like, you know, even even if somebody had come up to me with a gun, you know, and put it to my head, it wasn't it wasn't logical terror. It was more um, just this blind, irrational, and palpable sense of death and of, of losing myself at that time. Well, the word so. primordial is very apt. There's a line in the Upanishads which says, certainly all fear is born of duality. So it's like the very initial sprouting of duality from the unified field. It births fear at that primordial level. And it's, it's kind of like, like with crossing you know, a plane, breaking the sound barrier, when we sort of reverse the process, and tr- again, traverse that primordial level back to unity. We we can experience that that root fear that is primordial, mm-hmm. the most primordial yeah. thing there is. Yeah, yeah. And I've I've only I think only in my adult life revisited that fear once, and that was actually at my first ten day vipassana retreat, and um, and I had that that energy sort of awoke again, and um, and. Uh, at that time, I, I went to see the the teacher there and told them about it, and they they said, you know, just just um, go back, observe the breath, and and um, you know, d- don't worry about it. <laughs> but uh, it, when it, when it um, awakened there, though, it was interesting. I actually felt almost like a coldness in the room. It it's, it was so large, but then the same energy now when I experience it it's blissful now because my consciousness is in inhabiting it. So it really, it's like the ego just gets used to letting go or, or dying or whatever you want to call that. And, um, you know, so that very same sensation, it's contracted, then it's fear. Um, but if it's not contracted, it's, it's just freedom. It's bliss, actually. Yeah. Well, you know what FDR said in his second inaugural address? He said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And, uh, you know, I think there's several, I think there's several factors which can determine how fearful it's going to be. One is how quickly it happens. If it's, you know, if if it's a whole bunch all at once, that can be rather traumatic. Otherwise, it can just be a very gradual incremental process and you, you don't notice much happening. And you just kind of ease through it. And then another is um, whether you understand what's going on, you know, because if like Suzanne Siegel, you have no idea what's happening, you can be you can be fighting against something which could actually be blissful if you were to relax into it with, yeah, with understanding. Yeah. yeah. And especially in our society, we have we have, you know, when when things like that happen to a little kid, for example, you know, I think the um, the psych wards are filled with people. They, you know, you just get medicated in our system where you, you know, people don't know how to deal with this. Whereas, you know, in a, in an indigenous culture or some of the shamanic cultures, you know, they may see 
that as a as a sign that you know you're ready for some spiritual training or you know but um yeah and of course i mean you mentioned catholicism there i think have there have been adepts and and um you know mystics in in the christian tradition who would mm-hmm. have understood very well what you're talking about because they went through absolutely saint john yeah, the Cross, I've, dark I've, night of the soul you know all that yeah yeah i've come full circle with christianity in my own path I really uh, have come to see um, actually one of one of my biggest influences. Um, my my teacher uh, Nico. He uses a lot of Christian language, and actually a big part of the next film is um, seeing the the one perennial truth in all of these traditions. And I, I'm particularly drawn to the teachings of John of the Cross. You mentioned uh, Saint Teresa, Meister Eckhart, and uh, Saint Francis. I think all of these experiences and awakenings that they're having, you know, it's just Christian language, but it's the same as in every tradition, I think. Mm. I should put you in touch with a couple of people. Mirabai Starr, who did translations of St. John of the Cross, and my friend Dana Sawyer, who was friends with uh, Aldous Huxley and Houston Smith and wrote biographies of them both. They, they could probably be helpful to your project. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Right now I'm in in that sort of taking in mode, like just gathering and synthesizing and uh, exploring all of it. So there, you know, it'd be a perfect time because things are German right now. Great, great. So you got past the fear phase, you clamped it down, stuffed it, (laughs) become a normal teenager. Yeah, so I got into philosophy. I went to school for philosophy at uh, Western. And then I actually went to law school. And uh, you had mentioned uh, before the interview started about uh, how sometimes, you know, it seems like your your entire life, at one point it might seem like a series of random events, but then later on you see that you're being prepared for something. And uh, it really seems like that. Like even my, my year of law school, I thought it was a complete waste of time at the time because it, it was totally not what I wanted to do, which can be helpful. I mean, learning exactly what you don't want to do is is a teaching. But now, like working with these films, there is a, a legal aspect and dealing with contracts and all that stuff. And, and then the f- philosophy is part of it. And, uh, you know, and my, my path led me and um, I always I always was creating music. My mom was a, a music teacher, so I learned music when I was a little kid. So I got into creating music for my friends' films. I had friends in film school. So I was exploring music all along the way. And that sort of took me into the television and film world and formed a company with some friends. And we were, we were delivering a, a series for Discovery Channel. We were just young, you know, just doing what people do. I was, I was just trying to, I thought it was cool. You know, and I, I wanted to make money. I, I was completely embedded in the matrix. I was like totally playing video games, drinking lime coolers and up till three in the morning and, you know, just abusing my body. Didn't know how to feed myself or take care of this vessel. So, you know, after years of that, whatever spirit is in me or whatever, however you want to say it, something rebelled and just hammered me. And I developed a uh, an autoimmune, just overnight, basically, an autoimmune disorder, um, type 1 diabetes, 
rheumatoid arthritis, like just got hammered. And uh, I was forced to um, try and figure out how to survive or how to get through this. And I, I basically had to let go of everything, let go of my relationships, everything. Moved out of Toronto into a tiny little place in the middle of nowhere to heal, it was close to nature. So that was the beginning. And during that time, my mind really it was the diabetes was, was um, the biggest problem because I was doing everything backwards, everything wrong. Like I was, I was doing, I thought maybe I had a parasite. So I was doing these cleanses, I was doing some cleanse where I'm, I'm like drinking like lemonade with honey and stuff uh, like that. So I'm spiking my blood sugar. <laughs> yeah. So like the, it took me several years to actually get the diagnosis of diabetes. So for a couple of years, it was like my blood was boiling. It was excruciating and I couldn't sleep. So my mind was was going and worrying and fear and, and I was losing huge amounts of weight. I went from like 160 pounds down to like 120. And I was at one point I was like a skeleton. And so I, I was worried and I desperately just wanted to get some sleep actually. And um, I had a friend who was, he, he had that um, afterglow from coming back from a Vipassana retreat. He said, you know, why don't you do that? He was very intuitive and he could tell a lot of my issues were my mind. My mind was just pathological at that point. So um, I figured I have nothing to lose and I, I saw it benefited him. And, uh, and I, I went to the Vipassana retreat with no idea what it was. I, I literally hadn't even read their website. So I, I just went on his advice. So I had had true beginner's mind, like totally ignorant of, of anything that was happening there, which was good. So um, it was SM Goenka doing the teaching on the, the screen. I just kind of surrendered. I just thought, okay, I'm going to go with it. He was he was very adamant, you know, just follow the, the technique and everything. So I did. I had excruciating pain in my body, like the rheumatoid arthritis was down like deep into my bones. And I can, I was sitting there trying to meditate and mind going crazy and I'd be collapsing and pain and sitting up collapsing. And it was like, push me 100% like beyond what, what I could handle. And something gave way, I guess, in that. I was determined, I almost left actually after the first day and second day and a couple people talked me through it. Luckily, I stuck with it. I don't know why, like something something in me, you know, just grace or something. I don't know, but um, I'm not sure why I was so determined to, to do it, but um, something gave way. And I, I see like some people with meditation, um, I've studied a little bit of uh, Ayurveda and they talk about the doshas and body type and I'm, I'm very Vata. So my, my uh, tendency is I seem to realize states or realize you know energy awakenings and things very quickly but i lose them just as quickly so at that retreat i had a samadhi experience what i would now call a savakalpa samadhi experience where i was so in my body in the energy you know doing this body scan and my my awareness merged with my energy field which connected me to all that is basically so during this experience, I was I was walking around, literally feeling the energy of the, the universe flowing through me. 
you know, I'd walk out, outside at night and, and literally the, the consciousness of the stars were me looking back at myself. I could feel myself in, in everything. And, um, and it was, you know, it was everything I ever wanted. It was, it was like total completion and, and perfection. Uh, you know, I just wanted to stay there forever. And of course, my, my ego was not prepared for this experience at all. So every state it passed and my ego was desperate, like to, you know, how, how do I get back there? How do I hang on to this? And the more I would grasp at it, the more it quickly it started to go away. And I think, you know, I was in that state for, you know, less than 24 hours. It wasn't, wasn't that long. And by the time I went to bed that night, I, I fell asleep and then woke up and it was completely gone. And so the next day I experienced absolute loss. You know, I went from being everything to being this little insect creature again. And it was, I think, the only time in my life I actually just wanted to not exist. I was desperate like, to, to get that experience back. Now, you know, looking back at it, I realized, you know, what was missing was I, I was walking around in that state, you know, and I was sure I was, I was exactly like Jesus or I was exactly like the Buddha, like this was it, you know, this is the state. But I was identified with that character. I thought, Dan, this Dan structure was it. So I hadn't realized prajna or the truth of what we are. So I, I had full on identification. So it was many years later that I, I started to uh, delve into Zen and uh, self-inquiry, non-dual non teachings. And then I had a, a different kind of samadhi, like the, the Nirvikalpa samadhi, where you realize form and emptiness as one. There's, there's kind of a collapse of this duality. And I realized there, there's nothing to be attached to. The challenge over time is to let these states come and go to encompass them with equanimity and with consciousness. Ken Wilber talks about states and stages. You know, states are all kinds of things that we can get temporarily. Stages are more permanent abiding conditions that can eventually arise and yeah, uh, become natural. That's a beautiful distinction. I, I think that's that's exactly it. I distinguish between awakening, which is it's in the moment, it's now, and then there's this enlightenment process that is this continuous development process. And it's like we rewire ourselves and we create um, sort of a, a purified vessel to contain that awareness so that it doesn't come and go. For me, I'm still working on the development process. Um, you know, I've had many awakening experiences now in my my life and even doing long sits there's there, there are little awakenings all the time happening and every once in a while there's the complete cessation of you know the vertis or the whirlpool of the mind but to live in that state you know i, I believe what the yogic traditions are talking about you know the growing the inner lotus the chakras all of that we wire ourselves to um create this sort of unconditioned self-structure that supports awakening so that the awareness can just kind of shine through. So it is a paradox. Like I, I talk about exactly what you said, actually, um, like states of samadhi. And then there are the, the stages of actual living, you know, living life in 
a stage where that wiring has reached a new level. With each level, there's, there is a, a, a change in consciousness. And, you know, those traditions say when, when the wiring is permanently at the, the crown, you know, the energy is moving from the root to the crown, then that, that is it. That's the, you know, and the depictions of the halos and these traditional images, I think, are, are conveying that as well. I think it's an important point. I mean, there's a chance I could shoot a basket from 40 feet out or something like that, you know, but to do that consistently, like Steph Curry or somebody, takes a great deal of training and probably in, in the case of this example of a younger body. But sometimes people in certain spiritual circles poo-poo the idea of practice because they feel that it's going to only reinforce the sense of a practicer. And they feel like, well, the reality is what it is. So just realize that. Why should you have to beat around the bush and do something? Yeah, it's very tricky. Like I, one of my favorite teachers is Krishnamurti, you know, and he was, he was very scornful of uh, traditional meditation because he saw how people doing these techniques, you know, a technique is just something conditioned. It's something that we learn. It, it's within the self-structure. And if we're just repeating this thing, you know, people sitting on cushions, you know, doing these practices will never come to that cessation of the whirlpool of the mind if we're engaging in these practices. So I, I totally agree with Krishnamurti. I agree with everything he's saying. But I also see that these techniques have value. I love the phrase, a thorn to remove a thorn. I think sometimes, you know, like the Vipassana body scan technique is a great example. We teach that at the center along with many other different techniques. You know, some of these techniques work for some people and others for other people. I think a good technique is one that is purifying the conditioned patterns. Like it's allowing whatever is in our unconscious you know, these, these little programs and sub-programs in our unconscious are, are just running and we can't become free of them until we um, excavate. You know, we have to, we basically stop responding to the craving and aversion or the preferences of the conditioned mind. And when, when we stop these, what they call samskaras or sankaras in the Buddhist tradition start to come up to the surface. and they sort of bloom and, and die if we if we just are not attached to them or don't respond to them. So to me, that process, that is working within the framework of the body and, um, you know, dealing with these unconscious patterns, which is purifying the vessel, basically. But also, I think what Krishnamurti says is true, like the absolute awareness just is what it is. It needs no perfecting. It needs no development process. So when you when you have these awakenings, the paradox or the, the hard thing to grasp with the mind is that you awaken and you realize it's the same awareness that was always there. And it's been ever present and unchanging. It's spotless, it's stainless, but it gets obscured over and over by the mind. So we, we it gets entangled with mind and that's the game of Maya we're playing here. It's this whirlpool of the mind that just snags us over and over. So, so to me, the way I teach at the center is self-inquiry and meditation simultaneously. 
So when we're when we're doing a technique for observing the breath or observing the third eye or whatever, it doesn't really even matter so much as long as we're cultivating equanimity and concentration and freeing these sankharas. But you can also be aware of who is doing this practice at the same time. So rather than just the mind running with this pattern, I, I love the, the Zen story about the polishing the tile. So we're not just polishing tiles at the meditation center, but we're, we're aware. The story of being that you, if you polish a tile or polish a brick, you can polish for the rest of your life. It's never going to become a mirror. Exactly. So, yeah, I should maybe say the story for, for people <laughs> who don't story. know it. But, but uh, yeah, so there's there's a student who, um, you know, he's sitting in meditation and um, and the, the Zen teacher comes and says, what are you doing? And and um, the student says, well, I'm, I'm meditating. I want to become enlightened. And the, the teacher picks up a stone tile and starts polishing it. And the student says, why are you polishing that tile? He says, I want it to become a mirror. I want to keep polishing it to become a mirror. And and the student says, well, you, you can do that forever. That's That stone's never becoming a mirror. And, and it's the same thing with our practice as well. If it's just the mind doing some condition technique, we'll never realize our true nature because, um, you know, in, in these ancient traditions, you know, it, it is a, a cessation of this whirlpool of the mind that is, it, it allows you, it's in that absolute stillness, this the, this unfathomable experience happens, or, or it's not even an experience because, you know, it's the collapse of experience and experiencer. To me, that's probably the most important thing in meditation is to realize like we're, you know, these techniques are great we're moving from gross mind that's full of thoughts to subtler mind, subtler, 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 using a thorn to remove a thorn. And then eventually we throw all the thorns away and just come to stillness. And, it, and it's in that stillness that, um, you know, prajna or, you know, I, I sometimes say, um, I've heard other teachers say this, like, it's almost like it happens by accident, but we make make ourselves accident prone by doing these these um, practices and techniques. And I know for me, if I had never done Vipassana meditation and never done all the stuff I'm doing, you know, there's no way if I was just watching Netflix and drinking beer. Drinking lime coolers. Yeah, it's not going to happen, right? It's like we're cultivating this, you know, purifying this, this vessel. And then um, maybe there's an element of grace. I don't know what it is, what makes this happen, but um, it can happen. And I think all we can do as as limited ego structures is just prepare, cultivate the garden, but we don't control what grows in it. Yeah, let me respond to a few of those points. Firstly, regarding grace, you know, there's that saying, God helps those who help themselves. And there's some some, some cool stories in various scriptures about the disciple or the student putting forth a certain amount of effort. And then once he has done enough effort, then the guru or the or some or God or something or other just blesses him with grace and that accomplishes it. Then with regard to uh, realizing that enlightenment was always the natural condition once enlightenment has been attained, it's like the sun is always shining. The sun doesn't care whether there's clouds or not. 
because the sun is not obscured from its perspective. It's not obscured by clouds. But it makes a difference to the person on the ground, so to speak, whether there's clouds. And wind can help blow them away. So wind, wind is like a technique. And then you know, once they're blown away, then boom, they're, oh, the sun, it's, it's always been shining. So there's that. And then we, regarding, regarding Krishnamurti, he was a good example because he spoke from his level of consciousness and his listeners listened from theirs. And the twain never really met. You know, he sat there yeah. and sort of criticized techniques, and people were with him for decades and ended up continuing to be frustrated because he had no way of conveying or enabling them to you know, rise to the level of, of his experience. So there's a saying in India, when the mangoes are ripe, the branches bend down so that people can easily pick the fruit. So there's something to be said for teaching in such a way that it meets the student where they're at and enables them to begin to progress. And regarding progress, you know, you've alluded to the notion that we're talking about something very physiological here. All these some scars and impressions that we're talking about, if physiologists knew how to do it, could be located in the neurophysiology as perhaps chemical or structural imbalances. So the release or the working out of these samskaras is a neurophysiological process or transformation. There's been plenty of research to show that during different types of meditation, there are significant physiological changes. And also with, with long-term meditators, in, again, in various traditions and, and practices, there are significant changes that are abiding, whether the person is meditating or not. The brain itself is significantly restructured, as can be seen from thickening of the frontal cortex and phase coherence between different parts of the brain. In other words, synchrony between the brain waves in different parts of the brain. The healing of functional holes in brain functioning, which are revealed by fMRI scans. There's, so we're really just, through spiritual practice, we're really transforming the physiology to make it a fit vehicle for living this higher state of consciousness, whatever we want to call it. You're talking about polishing the brick. Something you said there made me feel like, well, the measure of, a, of an effective practice should be how effectively it enables the mind to settle into samadhi. Yeah, I've heard you allude to the, the second verse of the Yoga Sutras, Yoga Shchitta Vritti Naroda, the, the yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. Okay, so why would that be a good thing, the cessation of fluctuations of the mind? Because then the next verse says, then the seer is established in, in himself. So it's like choppy water can't reflect the sun very clearly. Still water can reflect it perfectly. You sometimes see these photos of still water and you, it looks like the same scene above the lake and below the lake, you know, because the, the, the trees or whatever are being reflected perfectly. So a, a still mind um, can allow the self to shine forth freely without obstruction or disturbance. And so that's the purpose of that type of practice. And so you could perhaps, you know, measure the worth of practices by how effectively they accomplish that. And you could measure that physiologically as well as by subjective report. So there you go. There's some responses to what you said. Wow. Wonderful. It's, it's some, it actually seems like um, you're using so many examples that I use all the time. So uh you know, it's it's. I, I forgot that you were speaking. Actually, so, <laughs> that's, that's funny. So yeah, it's wonderful. It's the same person yeah, speaking, it, right, Daniel? <laughs> so yeah, I think it's a wonderful use of of science. Like if science can start to really have objective measures for these things, it, we can we can open so much up so quickly. 
there are amazing things being done. I was just checking out um, David Vago. He's at Harvard. He's doing studies with the fMRI and uh, doing, uh, I think he, he came to some conclusions on the default mode network, which is just the, basically when we're just being here, you know, what's going on in the mind, like just our, our kind of default processing in the mind. And they've, they've found, you know, conclusively that, uh, you know, meditation, like meditators just have less going on. There's, there's less interruption happening just as you're existing in the present moment. So, you know, I think these, these things are great, even just to get people excited about meditation and see, see that there is an objective value. Um, because, you know, really people like that, that to me is kind of my job with these, these films as well is, you know, I can't convey really what happens in meditation. There's, there's nothing I can say or depict or use, use fractals or, but if I can get people curious about it, you know, and I think science, there's an incredible possibility there for science to get people curious to look within themselves. One example I've sometimes used is picture yourself working really hard, you know, like you're working these 12 hour days or whatever, 16 hour days, and you're under a lot of pressure and you're all frazzled and your mind is just crazy and you can't sleep properly and you're drinking a lot of coffee and you know, in that state of mind. And then you go on vacation and you're there a couple of weeks just sort of lying on the beach, just relaxing. And by the end of a couple of weeks of vacation, you just feel so mellow and so clear and, and so kind of happy inside compared to the way you felt. So contrast those two conditions. Now imagine that you could sit twice a day or whatever and enter into that state that you feel after two weeks of vacation, you know, for half an hour or an hour or whatever, and then come back to your daily activity you would not only enjoy that hour or whatever where you sat, but your daily activity, it would carry over into your daily activity. You would feel the influence of it throughout the day. And if you were to do that on a regular basis, the influence would accumulate such that you could never get so perturbed by things as you once did. This is sort of a stable equanimity that would develop. And again, there would be a physiological reason for that as well as your inner subjective experience. Yeah, absolutely. If I look back 20 years ago when I when I started meditation, I was full of anxiety and um, stress and fear and all kinds of stuff. And if I measure, I think the only measure of of a meditation practice is, you know, like like the Buddha said, you know, it's about freedom from suffering or freedom from the self. And um, you know, if I just look back over my life, um, I just have less suffering. To me, that's the measure. It's also opened up all these other worlds and, and things like that. So it's it's like, you know, I think the your antenna starts to be able to receive. So you have a, an expanded experience of life. So I guess there's two things. There's freedom from suffering, but then there's freedom to. So you're free to explore all these other aspects of being as well. So I guess it's it's kind of going in two directions. In some ways, through this process and wiring, we're expanding the self-structure, but we're also realizing the emptiness of the self-structure at all these levels. I imagine if you look back on your life, you would say that a lot of the suffering you once experienced was self-inflicted. And, uh, and you're now, sort of, there's a sort of a skill in action. You know, the Gita says yoga, what is it? Yoga karma shukoshalam. Yoga is skill in action. There's a skill in action now, which you conduct your life in such a way that you don't 
create methods for yourself. You know, you don't you don't inflict suffering on yourself. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Krishnamurti spoke about like the collective ego, you know, as as the problem. Like we on this planet are the suffering that we're experiencing is due to the collective ego and you know identification with what whatever whatever we define ourselves as soon as we create a definition we create a, a limitation and we create another you know if i say i am this you know i'm i'm christian i'm jewish i'm muslim i'm american whatever it is um then you know because of that label there, there's it means some people aren't that, you know, and and it creates this disconnect. And um, you know, I I I love um, when he said, um, you know, the ego is inherently violent. You know, it's a violence. It's a it's a, a cutting of or or a fragmentation of consciousness from itself. Yeah, and there's an interesting point you just made a minute ago, which is that even though there's a sort of an emptying out taking place, I don't remember your exact words, at the, at the same time, almost ironically or paradoxically, there is a sort of a, a fuller and freer expression of your uniqueness and of your individuality. I guess you could say your individuality. I mean, you see that in your own experience and in the, in the lives of people we might respect who seem to have achieved a high level of consciousness, like the Dalai Lama or whoever. There's this sort of... Um, richness to their personalities you know they're not just all plain vanilla empty flat uh, yeah. colorless saps um, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a sort of vibrancy and charisma and um, you know fascination that you that you feel in in watching them function so it's kind of like it frees up what is beautiful within us not only in the sort of universal sense but even in terms of our individual qualities yeah yeah absolutely and i i think the um like in the, the Upanishads, I, I love, you know, and some of these really ancient teachings, you know, they, they talk about all these different levels of existence. Really, we are living in this limited reality on the level of, of the mind and the physical. But there are these these other levels of, um, you know, the, the energy, like when somebody starts to tap into their Kundalini energy, you see it in their face, you see an aliveness. You see it shining from the eyes, and um, the, the Upanishads talk about these other higher levels, like the koshas, the Vinyanamaya kosha and Anandamaya kosha. These are whole realms of existence that we we can experience in life. And when we start making connections with them, there's knowledge, there's wisdom. It's it's tapping us into stuff that is is beyond just our our self and our culture. To me, it's mysterious where where a lot of this comes from. But uh, I talked about Akasha in one of the films, and um, you know this idea that that everything is mind. You know, the the, the first Hermetic principle, all, the all is mind. Even what we think of as deep space, you know, with the the Millennium Run simulation, we now know that when you start to map out dark matter you know it looks exactly like a brain complete with neurons and everything so it is all mind i see it as this whole energetic structure that we're inside of can be like an antenna and we can connect to those higher levels of mind and you know the dharma and these ancient teachings i think every being who who has 
you know, made that connection, they're sort of bringing in the same truths, but um, in different ways and, and different expressions, different unique truths. Based upon what you just said, this would be a good time to ask a question that came in from Manuel in Vienna, Austria. He asks, in an interview with Cheryl Sitz, you were talking about higher levels of reality beyond the mental and physical level, like the energetic level or the angelic realm. His question is, how can we be sure that altered states of reality experienced through meditation techniques or psychedelics are not just illusions made up by our own mind? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, this, this entire game that we're playing here, this entire universe and existence is all mind. So we, we can't. I love um, Xuan Tzu. There's the story about him, the dream of the butterfly. It's so real. He was questioning, seriously questioning, you know, am I a butterfly dreaming that I'm a man or a man dreaming that I'm a butterfly? This is the question. And I, to me, it's, it's mysterious. As we go deeper into the meditation world and on the path, and to me, my experiences of the dream realms, and like dreaming as opposed to waking, or these, sometimes we call them communications, where we, we have these connections to the higher self. It's becoming more and more real, seeming real, like more solid. But simultaneously, it seems like this so-called real world is becoming a little more dreamlike and a little more permeable. And it, it's sort of blending. But the, the awakeness that is at the center of it, the awareness, which is unchanging, to me, that is what we are. That's the essence of what we are. That's the truth. You know, this is Maya, like in the, the Upanishads that I was describing, like they use the word Maya in the description of these things. It's, it is all Maya. I'm thinking about the, the Heart Sutra in Buddhism, where he says, um, you know, the awakening or the awakened one realized all the emptiness of all the levels. I think he was talking about the five skandhas, but it's the self structure, basically, like all levels of self. So when we, we realize that it is, it is illusion, it's all illusion. So I've had weird experiences of these different levels. And, you know, some of them I, I wouldn't want to share because people will think I'm insane. You I know, think we so already established I, that at the beginning of the interview, right? When you were jumping on your parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I got nothing to lose, I guess. But, you know, to me, I see it all the same way, right? It's a play of form. It's a play of consciousness. My teacher, Nico, he talks about the imaginal realm. This is a term kind of coined by a writer named Henry Corbin. He writes about the, the higher worlds and he does an, an exhaustive study, which is, is fascinating. Carl Jung, actually, his, his active imagination, a lot of his stuff is based on Henry Corbin's work. So Nico distinguishes between imaginal, which is what's going on in the higher mind, and imagination, which is a product of the lower mind. The way that we distinguish between the two in our subjective experience is that when things happen on the imaginal level, there is an actual concrete energetic change. These symbolic or these archetypal experiences that can be had, you know, interacting with deities or netters or, you know, strange beings, you know, whatever, whatever's happening there, 
to me there's there's some sort of symbolic thing playing out and um, if we can dance with it or play with it sometimes we may face our fears we may face different aspects of ourselves, and it can make huge shifts in our actual life in our actual energy so I don't really care, you know, about real or unreal. To me, you know, that distinction is just a distinction of the dualistic mind. But what matters to me is if I'm doing a pure investigation, it's not, I'm not just manufacturing something with my mind. I'm, when I work with Nico, he'll say, you know, if you start thinking, he'll kick you out. So he'll, he'll be like, you know, I just want you to report what's actually happening, you know, empirical investigation into what is actually happening. You know, if you're if you're just observing reality as it is, what you're perceiving through whatever faculty, mind, senses, the organs of higher perception, you are just looking at what is. And then it can change your subjective experience in life. And it's exciting. Whether we label it as um, you know, real or unreal, I think I think that's just a you know, that's just the mind playing its little game. Yeah. With regard to Manuel's question, how, how do we know these things that people report, angelic realms and what are made up by our own mind or not? The whole scientific enterprise started out as an attempt to circumvent the, the fallibility of human subjectivity. In other words, to try to determine what is objectively true, regardless of our understanding or misunderstanding of it. And there's several methods which are employed in that, which are repeatable experiment and empirical experience. If someone comes up with a hypothesis and tests it and gets some results that seem to confirm the hypothesis, he then says, okay, all you other scientists test it also and see what you get. And if they also keep confirming it, then it sort of lends greater and greater greater credibility to the hypothesis. And if, if they start poking holes in it, then maybe he has to go back to the drawing board and come up with a better hypothesis. But it's an attempt to understand how the universe actually works, because prior to that, there were all kinds of kooky ideas about how the universe works. And, you know, I mean, geez, the Earth is the center of the solar system. Um, Galileo developed a telescope through which he could disprove that. The Catholic hierarchy refused to even look through his telescope because they said, no, that violates the Bible or something. I think we've, we've made a lot of progress through this method of understanding what's really happening as opposed to our subjective fantasies about what might be happening. Yeah, definitely. And I, I see um, like Aldous Huxley's work on the perennial philosophy and just my own understanding of these different traditions. Like you see at the root of it, there is one sort of perennial teaching that is coming back. You know, there's these traditions, they talk about chakras or the, the sephirot, or there are these different angles, different languages to describe one thing. So um, I think, you know, there is, I don't want to say objective truth, but to me, like when Plato was speaking of the, the realm of forms, there is a sort of form to the awakening process. You know, there's a form to, um, you know, whatever it is, the spiral that extends from our DNA to the galaxies there's an intelligence that's embedded there and it's expressing in different ways and we we can we can see in these different traditions how they they are reflecting you know some of them are reflecting part of the evolution some of them are 
um, you know, reflecting the higher levels and, you know, who knows how, how far it goes. But um, so to me, I, I feel like my, my investigation, you know, with, with these, these films is there is sort of a form to what is happening or a truth. And um, I think science is about getting at that truth. I'd love to see the convergence in the, the Platonic period, like Pythagoras, um, in his time, there was just a, a search for knowledge and wisdom. Back then, you know, music and mathematics and searching the heavens for knowledge, it was all one endeavor. And we didn't have this fragmentation that we have now. I'd love to see these different fragmented aspects of, of science come together with this genuine inquiry. And at the same time, that being said, like in, in philosophy, I, I also, you have philosophers like Berkeley, you know, where to be is to perceive or be perceived. There is a truth in that as well. We can use these empirical tools, but at the end of the day, what am I here? You know, I, I am a mind, senses, and energy, and this filter, or what Huxley called the reducing valve, it is our interface with the outer. So to me, there's a truth in both of those things. You know, I always approach it from the relative and absolute. From the relative perspective, we can go into these sort of objective, worldly knowledge of, of the forms, but then you know, from a, a samadhi point of view, like when, when you're in that place where there is no subject and object, there's an actual collapse of subject-object duality, then this whole investigation becomes just play, basically. Yeah, one thing I find inspiring about your films is the discussion. Well, you quote Plato, for instance, you say, there's a golden key that unifies all the mysteries of the universe, the intelligence of the logos, the mind of God, the intelligence of the universe. I find that inspiring because a lot of people in spiritual circles seem to just talk about consciousness in kind of a plain vanilla way without recognizing the intelligence inherent with it. I interviewed someone recently who, you know, kept insisting there is no such thing as God and your brain creates the universe. But then how do you account for the marvelous orderliness that we see displayed in the universe? You talked about Lee patterns in one of your films, archetypical patterns found at all levels of nature. Here's a quote from Goethe that I picked up from one of your movies. Beauty is, the, is a manifestation of the secret natural laws which otherwise would have been hidden from us forever. So a close look at what's actually going on, which science helps us do, to me gives me goosebumps because it shows that there's some profound level of intelligence and organizing power orchestrating every little particle of creation. And if we extrapolate throughout the whole universe, we realized that wherever we were to look, we would find it functioning there. So what do they say about God? God is supposed to be omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. That's exactly what I just described in terms of that omnipresent intelligence functioning at all levels from the vast to the ultra-microscopic without an error, in complete accordance with beautiful orderly laws, which 
interestingly correspond with mathematics. We, that's a whole other topic. But, but go ahead and respond to what I just said. Yeah, well, I actually, I actually brought a little prop. You talked about uh, Lee patterns. And uh, this, this is a little something from the next film, actually. And I'm going to put it up against my shirt. I don't know if you can see it. Looks this, like a tree branch. Yeah, so this, this is called a Lichtenberg figure. And uh, it's very beautiful. It's, I don't know if it's showing up really well on the screen there. Pretty well, yeah. But, but basically what this is, is um, they, so they zap this acrylic block with like a million volts of electricity or some huge amount of electricity. And so this structure is the, the path that the energy took in just like a millisecond. And, um, you know, so this, this is one of the, the Lee patterns, the, the branching patterns. When people get hit by lightning, you'll sometimes see these, these Lichtenberg figures on their body. Everything in nature is the spiral that extends through all these different levels. Like the energy is moving in these branching patterns and it's exactly what's happening in our mind. You know, so to me, like the, the path that energy took through our minds um, is, is actually us, you know, like that, that, that energy is, you know, it's just the pathway, the mind is just the tendency for that energy to repeat again, just like a river is being carved out. When you see that this is one Lee pattern, you know, this is one aspect of this primordial spiral, we've just carved off and started to look at it. This intelligence, I have a profound sense of not knowing, you know, when it comes to what this is. It's an awe, actually. Sometimes people with these films, there's a lot of information, a lot of stuff. And people are like, how did you figure all that out? And, and I don't know. I don't, I truly don't know. When I was working in television, it was very cookie cutter and, and templates and the way I'm working now, you know, I just meditate and information comes through and I just start writing and then it gets filtered. I work, um, like my, my partner, Tanya is a huge part of the process as well. I seem to be just tapped into this information and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And it's mysterious. I'm in awe. I'm literally, I'm like a little kid, just like kind of marveling at what's happening. So I'll be writing, but there's sort of a, a Shiva Shakti aspect to the way we work. So she's very clear on what will connect with people or what, what's touching her, her heart. So I'm getting all this stuff and it, and it just keeps going. Like I have hundreds and hundreds of pages that I, I just keep writing. And if, if I go back and look at it, it's like I've written the same thing over and over like 10 times. And, and I'll even do that on the film. Sometimes I'll recreate the same part. It seems like this endless sort of thing going on. And then Tanya comes along and somehow there's something operating through her where she She's kind of ruthless. She she like cuts through all the the nonsense, and she's like, "What what is really going to connect with people? What's going to hit their heart?" Like you're you're going off into abstract land here, but um, I have this tendency. I'll I'll do like a twenty minute section on Buckminster Fuller's vector equilibrium, and and people will be like falling asleep, <laughs> and, and she's like, "You're losing it. You're losing everybody. Like you can't do that." So she's, she's like executive producer and it literally, I couldn't, I couldn't be doing these films. They would not be 
what they are without her. They were just sort of stagnating until she came along. So, yeah, so to answer your question, like I, I think if there's one thing I've learned on this path is the value of not knowing, learning the, the limitation of the egoic mind. You know, it takes me back to Socrates, you know, he said the, the only thing I know is that I don't know. And to me, that's the truth. Like that's what meditation is teaching us is that, you know, when we, when we stop the pattern, this endless searching, endless processing in the lower mind, that energy becomes free and it can connect with the higher realms. And so, you know, in the moment from the egoic perspective, we don't know. We're suspending our knowing, but then if we trust, if we, if we just allow this connection to happen, something greater is out there. You know, there is this world of forms. There is a dharma. There is big mind, whatever you want to call it. Um, we can be like a little little node in that uh, mind. It's interesting because there's these these guys these days whom to whom they refer as the new atheists. You know, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and Christopher Hitchens, who died, and, and one other whose name I forget at the moment. I like listening to them, actually. But when I do, I think, dude, you can't be both an atheist and a scientist. You can be an agnostic and a scientist. But if you insist that things are a certain way, then you've shut down. You don't have a scientific attitude. And there are all kinds of anomalies which challenge your conviction, and you must be not listening to them. I think language, language is so divisive, you know, we, we like those labels like atheist or believer or whatever it is, it limits us and it, and it creates division. This was a big thing with Buddhism. I found one of my biggest challenges was reconciling the, the idea of anatta, you know, no self with the soul. It's like you have half the teachers talking about there is a soul and half of them are saying there's no self, there is no soul. But when you really look at what they're actually saying, they're saying the same thing. Anatta is realizing the, the emptiness of the, the self structure, but it's, it's not nothing. It's not like a void or emptiness. It's just a non-local consciousness that is everywhere omnipresent. The soul, depending on, on who's describing it, you know, if you look at the Upanishads and the sheaths of the soul, the phenomena of the soul, all these the different levels are obscuring the essence of the, the Atman from itself, which is it has no form, it has no place, it has nothing, it, only, it can only know itself or see itself through all these manifestations. So to me, they're identical. But you look at history and, and look at the descriptions and it's like going head to head. When you look at the true mystics are, are all in agreement, they're using different language. But then people who are not realizing it within themselves, they're holding on to an idea, concept. And, and I think even sometimes people who, who realize it with a fair degree of clarity experientially could have different takes on it according to the flavor of their experience. For instance, in the Vedic knowledge, there's a thing called Shunyavada and another called Purnavada. And one refers to emptiness and the other to the fullness. And it actually refers to the same thing. But perhaps, you know, different nervous systems, depending on which, which guna is predominant or which dosa or whatever, could have the very same experience and interpret it differently. 
And also in terms of other things, like some person might have transcendent experience. For one, bliss might be predominant. For another, the sense of vastness might be predominant. For for another, the sense of emptiness might be predominant. So it all depends on kind of the instrument through which that is experienced. And if we if we have the generosity to sort of recognize that we're all basically talking about the same reality, we're just, you know, like blind men and the elephant, feeling different aspects of it, then a lot of arguments can <laughs> be dissipated. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is, like, they, they talk about the, the jhanas in, you know, states of absorption as well into the one, you know. So um, people will sometimes have, a you know, a jhana, experience and awakening like uh, to me each jhana each state of meditative absorption and I, I should maybe clarify what that word is like in the yogic tradition it's it's dhyana or um, it also means chan in chan buddhism the word chan is it and zen is the same word as well so people when, when you get into meditation sometimes a level of absorption will happen where the mind, you know, part of part of the mind's operation will stop. Some of the programming will stop, and there'll be an increase in energy, and it's it's an awakening experience. And there are many many different levels, many different jhanas, many states of absorption, and there can be incredible blissful experiences. There can be deep peace, and I've been fascinated, you know, with people who come to the meditation retreats because there there's such a variety of experiences. Some people are experiencing their chakras and colors. Other people are, you know, they are seeing different beings and it's a whole cornucopia of experience. But I think where it all converges, you know, like these these jhanas, they talk about the, the material jhanas, which are to do with form. And I think that's where we get these these ecstatic experiences and bliss and satchitananda and depending on how you use that word some people are referring to it in in different ways but the immaterial jhanas as you start getting into these experiences of total dissolution where you know you start to experience consciousness in everything and you start to experience emptiness in everything then you get to what they they call neither perception nor non-perception which is this essentially big mind which is sort of getting to that point is the self-structure. It has basically become this big mind or, or dissolved into a big mind. The drop dissolves into the ocean. And that's when the indescribable happens. Then, or, you know, it's not even a happening, but something, you know, it's, that's like the garden laying the, the groundwork for awakening to happen and that that awakening is so indescribable but yet like the buddha said that realization is form all form is exactly emptiness emptiness is exactly form and this ultimate truth you know when you you hear the zen masters talking about it it's unmistakable if you've experienced it and there's no difference in what they're saying but the the problem is language like language is so slippery even saying form is exactly emptiness emptiness is exactly form that's not it you can't describe it in words we'll never get a definition there's there's something that happens you know but it's it's not even a happening that's not even the right word because 
it's like the black hole that I described in Samadhi Part 2. You know, there's an event horizon beyond which we cannot talk about this stuff. In the, the meditation center, what's exciting to me is not talking about this stuff and, you know, trying to figure it all out, but actually taking people through this stripping away, you know, going through the jhanas, the states of meditative absorption, and having a direct experience of this. To me, that, that is what's valuable. I can hear myself with all these words, and, and it's like, like, I just want to slap myself, actually. <laughs> you can have Tonya do it. Yeah, yeah. Slap well, you, she, she, she slaps me pretty good. <laughs> she well, slapped me right before this, actually. Good, yeah, just to wake you up. Her advice to me before this was, don't be an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Irene serves that function very well <laughs> over here <laughs> in terms of keeping us in line and preventing us from acting like idiots. One thing that I find fascinating about all this is we're talking about realms that are experienced by, you know, a relative fraction of the general population. And it could be argued that the whole thing doesn't even exist, that nobody has these experiences, or they're just hallucinations or something like that. And you can imagine, let's say only 1% of the population dreamed, then the general consensus would be that there's no such thing as dreaming. There's a few oddballs who talk about something that they think is dreaming. But, you know, pretty much everyone experiences dreaming. So even though it itself is in a kind of a illusory experience, we all agree that it happens. So with regard to this stuff that we're talking about, a pretty small percentage experience it. And throughout history, there has been a pretty small percentage. But there's this historical record of people experiencing it. And there's a lot of concurrence, a lot of agreement um, among all the various records from various parts of the world. Now, you know, per perhaps what's going on these days is that um, that which has been a rarity is becoming a commonality that, you know, through the media, through the kind of things you and I are doing, through all the, the proliferation of teachers and teachings, which used to be kind of a, you know, secret hidden thing or, that are now going public, perhaps, you know, reach a time in the next one, two, three hundred years where, you know, people would listen to a conversation like we're having and, and think, well, these guys were really sort of beating around the bush. I mean, obviously, everybody knows this stuff now, you know, I mean, what's the big deal? So like anything else. There's a limitation in terms of how much concepts and words can do justice to experience. I mean, what can you say about the way a, an apple tastes or the way a flower smells? You know, you really have to experience it yourself to know. But if things become a common experience, then people who have their senses intact can all agree upon the way a flower smells or looks or the way an apple tastes. And it could get like that with spirituality. It could become so predominant in the culture that it's an agreed-upon thing. And I think if such a time were to come, we'll be living in a very different world than we are now. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, even films like The Matrix, you know, they start to permeate the, the collective unconscious. And if you talk to somebody about, about living in The Matrix now, you know, most people will have some concept of what that means. And, yeah, or Star and, Wars, um, May the Force Be With You. It, it popularized yeah. the notion of a sort of ubiquitous field of... Uh, energy yeah. or something that interconnects us all. Yeah, yeah. So I think there there is a, a sort of acclimatization that that is happening for sure. And I, I see, um, you know, just the internet is an incredible thing. Twenty years ago, 
if I made a film and went the normal film festival circuit, I could maybe reach 15,000 people. Now it's like millions can find out about this stuff. These ancient esoteric teachings that were taught only by masters to students after 10 years of practice, you know, you can get them on Amazon for 10 bucks now. So it's an amazing time. It's almost too much information out there um, because a lot of these things, I think, get lost in the chaos of what's out there. And I think there's a danger with with meditation. Like it's I think it's wonderful what's happening with meditation, like mindfulness going into the hospitals and schools and different things as well. But what my hope is, is that the samadhi aspect of it doesn't get lost in this proliferation of uh, meditation. I think one thing leads to the next, you know, people go in because they want to lower their blood pressure and a couple of years later they're thinking, well, there's more to this than lowering blood pressure, you know, and they start getting into the more profound aspects. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. Like there are many entry points and stepping stones, and so that's why I think it's it's all fantastic. I think it's it's really good, and you know the the side benefits are very well known. I think um, for me, I you know I think the first kind of teaching I ever got was um, Deepak Chopra. It was a um, some kind of guided meditation had music on in the background and and everything. And it was at the time, it was perfect. It got, he got me into looking in, inside myself. So it's, it's all good. I think there's, there's a place for everything on this path. Yeah. A question came in, which I might as well ask now. It's a little bit out of context of what we're talking about right now, but we'll, we'll just do it. It's from Jean-Francois in Paris. He asks, having watched both your Samadhi movies and greatly appreciated them, I wonder what is your view on the kundalini process and its link to samadhi. The different degrees of samadhi start to happen once energy reaches agna chakra or the makara point as described in some literature by Joan Harrigan who's been on Bat Gap. Can one cultivate this phenomena to reach its full development and make it a positive one? Or is this something that just occurs naturally and spontaneously with spiritual practice? It's a great question. So I think um, my understanding of kundalini and you know a healthy kind of um, developmental process is that you know the the shakti and shiva have to kind of grow hand in hand. You know, if someone has kind of a, a traumatic event, or you know, sometimes people have have um, experiences in life that will prematurely open up. Uh, Kundalini, and that's when you start getting into like uh, Kundalini syndrome, and um, it's like Pandora's box. Basically, it's very, very difficult. I met a lot of people who, when when that energy is opened up, and they don't have the consciousness to to encompass it and ha- and inhabit it, you know, just like I did when I was a little kid. It can be terrifying. It um, it can cause you know if the ego structure is just determined to do what it wants to do in your life and this energy is guiding you to do something else um, you'll get sick you'll get you know all messed up in all different ways digestive endocrine system everything you know there's all kinds of stuff written on that so to me the integrated way of you know it growing is um, to just live a conscious life like it's not separate from your life you know, like all of this, this wiring inside of us is, 
you know, like if you think about what the chakras are, these these psychophysiological centers, you know, like you, they they talk about certain energies being like the the second chakra related to relationships, you know, your sex, sexual centers, being able to bring consciousness to that. In order to open these things up, you need to go experience these things. You need to to experience life. You need to experience your power to manifest in the world. You need to do things that push against your heart and open it up. You need self-expression and, and you know, so living your life, learning to play piano, whatever it is, you're creating wiring inside you. That's all the nadis. It's all part of this energetic growth that is happening. So I personally, I don't agree with these practices designed to prematurely, you know, it's like, I think I used, talked about in the film, it's like trying to force a flower to open. You don't force your flower to open, like explore life, like live your life and you will be wired. And if you're doing meditation as part of that, you grow these centers, you free the energy like in Tantra, I love the Tantric approach. You're not pushing any, anything away. You know, like my Christian upbringing, like a lot of a lot of things were considered taboo or bad, you know, but in the Tantric approach is go into these things, explore, open up this energy, but do it consciously. And then you learn to free the energy and the energy becomes available for the, the higher levels, the higher chakras. So you go into your, your sexuality, you go into, you know, experiencing the sensual pleasures, opening up the senses. If they're repressed and you're, you're just like, you know, I'm going to be a good little meditator and just push away all this, this body stuff those centers will be shut down and you'll never free that energy. So you have to kind of go into life first and then you experience it and you experience, you know, what causes suffering. You experience the Maya aspect of it all as well and experience the joy, pleasure. Like this is, this is life, right? This is the juice of life as well. Like these um, experiences to me are not separate from life. But to get back to the question, I guess, every samadhi experience I've had has been accompanied by an energetic opening or an energetic, almost like dying. I remember my Zen center experience where it was the first time I really understood this whole system of no escape for the ego, like you're locked in and you, you can't move and something has to give way inside. Something has to literally die inside or you get the hell out of there. And, uh, but if you're, you know, they don't let you move. So the energy gives way. And um, to me, there's there's always a shift of energy or, or every, every shift of consciousness is accompanied by a, a shift of energy. And to me, it's, it's just common sense. You know, if your energy is going into the old condition pattern, it's not available for this higher new experience you remain in that veil or, you know, the clouds in front of the sun, essentially. What you just said about enjoying life, I agree. I mean, life is here to enjoy. But there's also something to be said for sensibility and moderation. I mean, the Buddha talked about the middle way, and there are a lot of verses in the Gita about, you know, this yoga is not for him who eats too much or eats too little or doesn't sleep enough or sleeps too much, or, you know, that kind of stuff. And there have been some gurus where the scene around them is basically just an ongoing orgy. 
(laughs) all kinds of crazy stuff happening. So what we've talked about earlier in the interview about culturing the nervous system and treating it as a, you know, the body is the temple of the soul, as it says someplace in the Bible, treating it as a vehicle which can carry us to the other shore, you can damage that vehicle through all kinds of behaviors. So, yeah, enjoy life, but use a little common sense, maybe, at the same time. I don't know if you have ever interviewed David Data at all. or No. Um, I heard a, a great story about him meeting his teacher. And, um, you know, the teacher, the first thing he did, because he was he was like a really good meditator, being, you know, all the Buddhist virtues and everything. And the first thing the teacher did was, um, you know, sat him down with a case of beer and said, we're, we're going to drink. My teacher, Nico, is a little bit that way. The way he sees it is... The weight of freedom, you see what condition patterns are running. You know, it's not about any particular thing that you have to do or not do, you know. So for one person, you know, drinking beer might be their condition pattern, right? Like they might be craving it and they'd like to go unconscious. So for them to awaken, it's to break that pattern, obviously. But do you, know? you break but, the pattern by indulging in it? I think AA no, would beg to differ with you. No, no, I'm not saying you break it by indulging. So for that person, the the path is to stop it, to cut Ah, it out. I see. No. But for another person who is like afraid of it, you know, and they're afraid. Yeah, they're afraid to lose control. Their head is full of all kinds of virtuous ideas, right? (laughs) It's it's like, no, I I can't do that. So they're not free, right? So the particular thing that you're doing isn't it. What's going on in your head is it. So becoming free is not about, you know, I, I, I fell into this with attachment to things. At one point, I was like going absolute minimalist with my possessions. And I had a grand piano and I, I was like, oh, this it's such a big thing. And, you know, I want to have no attachments. But then I realized I was becoming attached to having no attachments. So the piano wasn't the problem it was me it was my mind so, mo- so moderation it's, it's, balance there's no harm in being wealthy this and that just don't do things which damage your nervous system i mean that was one of my realizations what before i started to meditate because i was i've been taking drugs for about a year and i was been arrested a couple of times dropped out of high school so i'm sitting there one night on lsd reading a zen book to steady my mind and i thought you know these guys are really serious and I'm kind of screwing around. Even I've been thinking about enlightenment for a year, meanwhile taking drugs the whole time. I thought if I continue on like this, I could really do some damage and I'll have to live the rest of my life in a damaged nervous system. I think, my, believe me, my thought process wasn't as coherent as, as it is at the moment as I'm explaining it, but that was the idea I got. So I thought, that's it. I'm going to quit taking drugs and learn to meditate. Hopefully things will improve and, and they did. Yeah. So I'm yeah. just cautioning a bit. I mean, I was standing in the grocery store yesterday waiting for Irene to come from a different part of the store. And I was standing there and happened to be looking at a case of beer on the floor because it had this interesting picture on the the case. And this friend of mine who walked up, who's an awakened dude, I mean, he witnesses sleep. He's aware 24-7. And he Mm -hmm. said, I bet you'd like a beer. I said, I had one about 10 years ago after cutting the grass. I was really hot one day. A friend offered me one. And he said, I have one pretty often. You know, I I, I like to have some pizza and a beer. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) So maybe I'm a little bit repressive, you know. Yeah. My father was an alcoholic, so I have an aversion to the whole scene anyway. But 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying and, and I, I agree. And my tendency in the past was even in meditation retreats, I, I fried my nervous system. Just I'd be going in with guns blazing and trying to storm the gates of heaven. And, Safety and, first. Uh, yeah, it doesn't work. The beer example is maybe a bad example. Like for me, I don't drink beer just because I don't appreciate the way my body doesn't like it. And I, uh, I prefer to be more awake than in that state. But I was just kind of using that as an example to illustrate that the particular object is not it. And yeah. So. There was a story about Shankara. I doubt this is a true story, but it, it illustrates the point. He was walking along with some disciples and he was walking ahead of them. And they saw him stop at something and drink it. And then he kept walking. And when, when they got up to it, they said, oh, it's, it's beer. The way I heard the story, it was beer. And so they drank some, and they, they all kept walking. And then they got to another thing, and they saw Shankar stop and drink something. And they got up to it and were getting ready to drink it, and they saw that it was molten glass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in other words, you, I, I won't even elaborate on the point of the story. People <laughs> probably get something out of it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Okay, let's talk about some other points you sent me that are that look interesting. I want to loop back to one just for a second that I I continue to always find fascinating and and that is the the sort of intelligence of the universe which you illustrate so beautifully in your movies. There's a a saying by Brian Swim who's a cosmologist. He says, "Leave hydrogen alone for 13.7 billion years and you get giraffes and rose bushes and opera." <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, yeah, you probably yeah, heard that. Beautiful, yeah. They're actually materialists who say, well, the universe is random and meaningless, and the only reason we have all this order and beauty and structure is that there are an infinite number of universes, and we happen to luck out and be in the one where randomly, through, through chance, it, everything just kind of came together. But that doesn't make sense, because we have the second law of thermodynamics in this universe, and, it, and there's no reason in, in terms of that law why all this order should have arisen out of chaos. Again, I'm fascinated and awed by the orderliness that arises out of hydrogen <laughs> that gave us stars that, that ended up exploding, that ended up creating heavier elements, that ended up creating biological life eventually, that ended up with us having this conversation. Um, it just thrills me and, and intrigues me why all of this should come out of apparent nothingness. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, something that, that uh, Sridhna Sargadatta Maharaj spoke about. He spoke about when fluids come together and the I am appears. Have you heard about that? You know, when, when he says that. What does he mean by that? There's this sort of self-organizing aspect to existence. So he's, I th he's, ta he's talking about within the framework of his body. Uh, maybe, you know, I, I experience what feels maybe like cerebral spinal fluid, you know, moving like in certain awakening experiences, you feel that the energy is conducted. There's a know, guy named Mauro Zapatera who talks about, that, about that a lot. If you Google him, uh, cerebral spinal, okay. spinal fluid, he, he speaks at the oh. SAND conference. Anyway, continue. Oh, interesting. And to me, you know, I would say even like energy comes together and the I am appears, you know, it depends how you frame it. 
there are all these different levels, right? Like, like the physical, there, there's this fluid aspect, there's the pranic aspect. Whatever it is that is happening, you know, this, this convergence happens and there's, there's an intelligence there. It's an intelligence so great that consciousness comes into being in the center of it. And the unfathomable thing is that in a samadhi state, everything is that, like every atom, you know, there, there is an I in every atom. There, there is at the center of everything, of every star, my cup on the table, it's all that. So somehow this consciousness is at the center of it. We're so enmeshed in this filtering, but, but when we go beyond the filter, it becomes, I don't want to say clear, but it, the Upanishads, they say not that which the eye sees, but that by which the eye can see, you know, not that which the ear hears. So that by which the mind thinks, that by which the eye sees, you know, what is that? What is that? Mm. You know, and why should there be eyes and ears and cups and all this stuff? What is that? Yeah. Uh, how does it, how does all this come into being or into apparent existence at least? Yeah, yeah. You know, Marshi Matasyogi had an interesting um, take on this. He said that until the self is realized, there's really not much talk about really understanding or appreciating what the world is, because who understands it? Who appreciates it? You don't even, if the knower doesn't know it himself, itself, uh, there's really no knowledge of any veracity. But he said once the self is realized, then, you know, naturally one begins to appreciate the, the universe more, appreciate the world more one begins to have the desire to know how this came about. Who created all this? What is that intelligence that gave rise to this, this beautiful creation? He said that, that that desire becomes more and more intense or more and more profound or deep. And at a certain point, that creator, whatever we want to define that as being, reveals himself or itself to us. And he said it's like an artist who keeps hearing that there's this guy in this town who just loves my artwork. And he keeps hearing this more and more and more. Finally, he, he thinks, I'm, I'm going to go meet this guy. You know, I'll go to him because there are so few people who really appreciate my artwork. I'd like to, like to know this person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love what you said about the, the Maharishi. I think um, it's such a, a true thing. It's like we, we can't, I, like that, the answer to the question can never come in the mind, but we can, we can be the answer. We can literally become the answer. So there's no more questions when you are the answer. It's only the, the limited mind trying to figure it out. To me, the closest I've come to that is, is it's like the, the limited self is in a state of awe, you know, a state of just absolute awe of what is coming out of nothing, coming from this unfathomable center unfathomable intelligence that's so far beyond to say that we're like a monkey watching it is is not even it's mysterious you remember that einstein you know, quote about awe that you put in your movie generally i remember it's in there i can't remember exactly how it goes but yeah yeah we're like little children you know trying to read this book in a foreign language that's it you know it's a really amazing book by um Alexander Lauterwasser. He's uh, an expert in uh, cymatics. The book is, it's called Water Sound Images, and it's images of vibration. 
And when you look at these things, like page after page after page, he'll show like a gong vibrating the water and what it looks like. Oh, yeah, you showed some of that in one of your movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's one, I think it's a didgeridoo, and it looks like some kind of Sanskrit language vibrating, you know, and just unfathomable complexity arising out of just simple sounds, you know, and these interference patterns creating creating this unimaginable complexity. But but when you see these things, you know, and, and these are these are just simple sounds. And you see the the complexity and the intelligence in it. And then you think about how much there is in a human being. This is just a plate of water being vibrated by a note. Like there's so much more going on within us. So it, it gets to levels of complexity that are just Unfathomable. Yeah, and um, I think both the Vedas and the and physics would say that the whole universe arises out of vibration. So you know this plate of water thing is just a little home example, but the Vedas themselves are supposed to be vibratory impulses that reside in what is called akshare, the transcendental akasha, and that through self interaction somehow there's this whole process where the universe emerges and then eventually collapses and emerges again. And physics has corresponding understandings in terms of something they call sequential spontaneous symmetry breaking, where there's this sort of primordial uh, harmony or or wholeness, which gets broken into more and more fragments and different, more and more diverse and specific laws of nature uh, through the process of manifestation. Mm -hmm. Recently, we invited a a fellow who um, does iboga retreats um, to the center and um, I had a, a sort of a teaching or an experience through that. I'm not, not sure if you're familiar with it. It's an entheogen. It's an entheogen, right. Yeah, sort of like um, along the line of ayahuasca, but um, has very different different properties. It's an amazing meditation tool actually because there's a real truth component to it where it, it shows you the stuff you don't want to see about yourself. It showed me in a beautiful visual experience but also energetically within my body there were these forms like this ether and forms just being birthed out of it over and over and over endlessly and then i felt like the consciousness that i was was sort of dancing you know and you just do this little dance and then you dive back into the ether and another form is born and you that dives back in but it showed me there there were some beings that they had, a, as they were diving back in, they had a look of terror on their face. They weren't just going with this dance, you know? So it really showed that, you know, what we're doing, our fears, everything that we're resisting in this world, we're, we're not really dancing that dance for the most part. Life and death is just arising over and over and over and over. But unless we're aligned with awareness, we don't see it as that dance. We're fearful of this little me getting dissolved back in the primordial soup. Well, that's the key point, is being aligned with awareness. Yeah. Which, of course, words fail because you are awareness, but (laughs) somehow aligned with yourself or in in tune with yourself or awake to yourself or whatever. And and then when we say yourself, it has an individual connotation, but it's not really individual. So, you know, you have to sort of take a leap of understanding when we use words because words are relative and, and limiting. A couple of questions came in. This is from Rez Abbasi from New York. He says, when 
you say live life, doesn't that come with attachments, the thing we're advised not to get sucked into? How do you gauge if you're leaning too much into life itself or the objective world? Mm. Yeah, I think um, we we kind of talked, you, I think, mentioned the the middle way, the balance, right? It's not repressing anything, denying anything that that is, you know, like if I have passions, if I have something, you know, I don't want to close that down, but I don't want to indulge it. My teacher talks about the little bosses that are inside of us. You don't want to feed those little bosses, you know, you don't want to be having these autonomous patterns running in you that are ruling your life where you're, you're grasping at things either. I love the uh, the old Buddha statues, like the really old ones that you find in the ancient temples that have the nagas around them. So you right, have uh, like snakes. The, the, yeah, the Buddha figure in the center, and then you've got these, sometimes the, they're like the chakras, the ones that potentially have the seven chakras or sometimes five, but they're, they're at attention. You know, these lower instincts, the serpent analogy is that, you know, there, there are these lower forces that have their own agenda, right? Their cravings, these little bosses that govern our lives. You know, when we awaken as awareness, like in those statues, they're at attention. The master is in the center and um, they're at attention. So you don't get rid of the Nagas. You don't cut their heads off, but you harness them. They become the lower, the devil is the angel. It's all one being, right? So we have to learn to allow these things to coexist inside of us. If we're, if we're pushing one part of ourselves away, we're fighting with ourselves. We're fighting with our own, with what it is inside of us. To me, it's the marriage of heaven and hell has to happen inside with these. There's a couple of Gita verses that I think address his question. Chapter 2, verse 45 says, be without the three gunas, which means transcend, which means meditate, which means go into samadhi, right? And then three verses later, it says established in yoga, we could also say established in samadhi, perform action. So he's not just saying, go fight this battle. He's saying, prepare yourself by getting established in the self, getting established in samadhi, then do it. And and the outcome will be completely different. It's like if you want to shoot an arrow, do you just put it on the bow and let go? No, you have to pull it back first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I think, yeah, there's something there where like once you've realized your true nature, you're not identified with the self, then you you can play with these things as well. At the beginning, there is huge value to having no preference because having no preference is the stopping of the vrittis and stopping of this, this endless cycle of craving and aversion. But then once you've realized the the true self, then you're free to play and you have to be careful still. My Dan structure loves chocolate. I can eat chocolate and it tastes amazing and it produces a nice kind of heart feeling. So, you know, why wouldn't I eat it? But there's a little boss that I have to keep an eye on that if he starts to get strong, he'll eat too much and it'll start to hurt my liver and it'll it'll it's not good for me in, in excess. So we we get an understanding of these different parts of us that are in play and we we manage them. It's like having a pet kind of like a you don't want to overfeed your pet, but you don't want to starve your pet either. 
true of just about anything. A little salt on your on your vegetables makes them taste better. Dump the whole salt shake around and you've ruined them. You know, there's so many examples of, of things that are good in a certain proportion, but too much of it is not good. Yeah, the, the golden mean, the, the middle way. This is how the yin and yang operate. There is a wisdom that we can connect to that sort of guides us. To me, it's very connected to energy. For me, I just feel when things are off. I can just feel in my body that um, a certain situation is not right or, or a certain thing is not good for me. The energy can be kind of like the canary in the coal mine. Even relationships, sometimes the energy before I even know consciously, the, the energy is already deciding things for me. You know, it's already moving in a, in a particular direction. The question came in from Rodrigo in Lisbon, Portugal. What was the process of writing the script of Samadhi? Hmm. Yeah, I did mention, so a lot of it, a lot. Just, <laughs> it came out of meditation, basically. Yeah. They speak about, um, with music, like there's the muse, there's a part of us, in, and it's, it's unfathomable. You feel drawn. Do you feel to, like a channel sometimes, or like, you know, this is bigger than you, and you don't, you're just kind of going along for the ride. You're, you're an yeah. instrument of the divine or of something much wiser and larger than yourself. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I'm even saying not, I'm not a particularly good instrument. That's one thing I, I'd like to talk about a little bit maybe is that I don't know if I've really conveyed you know I talk about a lot of this stuff that has happened to me it seems like extraordinary experiences but I'm a pretty normal regular person you know like I most of my life I was pretty embedded in the matrix and you know just through meditation it's opened up this connection but you know for different people it can be art it can be music it can be whatever you know it could be a gift to communicate with people in some way or to open your heart so these channels they're there i think it's like we have seeds of possibility within us and bringing awareness and stopping the flow of energy into these conditioned fears and patterns and jobs and all this stuff the, the stuff that we put all of our energy in life you can bring that into alignment with these seeds and grow them together potentially yeah. nice yeah. rodrigo also wonders what your daily practice is it changes like right now i'm in the middle of a 10-day retreat which we do so i'm doing a lot of meditation obviously at that but um tony and i do about two hours every morning two Sometimes hours of what of seated meditation so how and do you when, actually do it Basically, for me, meditation now, it's really changed over the years. To me, in terms of what Krishnamurti speaks about as choiceless awareness, I, I think his description of choiceless awareness is probably the best description of where I've ended up. So for me, there's no doing in the meditation whatsoever. So there's a penetrating into what the mind is already doing and then letting it go. The problem, the challenge is most of what the mind is doing is unconscious. So we have to penetrate into the layers of mind by being present, single-pointedly aware. 
but there's no doing in that. It's just being aware. And then mind patterns will become visible and then we can we can drop those patterns or they just sort of self-drop once they're conscious because that you realize you're doing it and then you, it's like, why am I doing that? So, so does, does the two hours go pretty smoothly? Um, is it enjoyable or are you sitting there kind of struggling for a couple hours? Again, depends. The practice is to be equanimous. So things come and go. Sometimes there's incredible bliss. Sometimes there's pain. The practice has changed a lot over the years. Like at the beginning, there was definitely at the beginning of the practice, there was a lot more pain and struggle and slogging through the mind. If I look at what's happening in my mind during the meditation, there's a lot less mind activity, a lot less vrittis and thought. And I would say the, the actual droppings the cessations are more frequent now than before. So when so people I, come to your center and learn to meditate and do a retreat, are you able to save them from a lot of the pain and struggle you went through because you've kind of learned things that enable you to teach them in such a way as to do it more effortlessly from the outset? Yes and no. Anybody who comes, you're going to have to learn to surrender inside. You're going to have to face your pain. You're going to have to learn to stop this process of craving and aversion. And when you're not reacting, that's a painful process for everyone. You know, people go through that. They have awakenings and emotional releases and um, they want to leave. They think this is hell. They take their little strolls through hell. But I see the value of if somebody has had previous experiences, I think there is value in being able to speak about what's going on. There, there are certain traps, certain pitfalls on the path, I think people can end up with concepts in their mind about what meditation is. And if those concepts aren't dispelled, they can spend a lot of time just you know, polishing tiles. One thing that often happens is people will, you know, they, they get some idea about anatta or no self. They go into almost like a, a stupor state, like a dull state. And there, there are a lot of pitfalls on the so path. So you help to, can have, help to sort of dispel some of those notions. Yeah, that's really, you know, I, I see as my role at the center is to just share what I've learned. And I, I'm still constantly learning from people, understanding how this all works. And you know, I feel like I'm, I'm still just at the beginning of my, my understanding. But. It's a good attitude. I think we should all do that. And people, I'm sure, aren't kissing your feet. <laughs> No, and, and I try and set up the relationship as well as I can. This this is one of the things Tanya slaps me with all the time because people do come and they think that I'm something. I don't, some kind of some big kind shot of, or something. Yeah, some kind of teacher. I just want to be free. You know, I don't want to be playing out some teacher archetype. And if, if I am, I'm not free. If somebody has that that label on me, they're not free and I'm not free. I truly see myself more as just, you know, I, I want to be in more like a friend relationship with someone, you know, just helping them on the spiritual path. Yeah. A question just came in from someone named Chitra in California. She asks, um, meditation lately has been in different forms. If I do choiceless awareness, my mind is raising random thoughts, which I am aware of. And then I feel mantra or one pointedness helps that. In other words, I guess just mantras are more helpful than random awareness. 
or choiceless awareness, what do you recommend for general people to do to make rapid progress? Hmm. The way we teach it at the center, we kind of feel it out with every individual and every group. Try and meet people where they're Customize at. Customize it, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there, there are people who um, really get the non-dual teachings and that's what's going to help them at that particular point. Other times we have tons of different techniques, like if the mind is racing, you can start to, you know, really turn awareness towards thoughts themselves and start to penetrate into that pattern. So you can you can see thoughts are, are either visual, auditory, or sometimes they're both. So you can start to observe these different qualities of thinking and you start to see whatever's going on any hindrance that's coming up, you're kind of doing the same thing. You're penetrating into the pattern in different ways, seeing the movement of the pattern. And then it's not like this gross thing that's just, just overtaking you in consciousness, but you can start to keep an eye on the movement. So there, there are a lot of tools like that, or there are Vipassana techniques of, of noting thoughts as well, like starting to understand what's happening. All of these tools can be useful I think at certain points in the journey to start to really bring awareness inside of the pattern and and start to break it up, start to get a sense of the energy of it and the movement of it. Do you do some yoga there? When I used to do long courses, like, you know, six weeks, six months, we would break it up, you know, like we'd meditate for an hour or whatever, and then do 20 minutes of yoga postures and then meditate another hour and then do 20 minutes of yoga postures, just so as to integrate. Yeah. Basically, it's self-directed. So we have an area in the Zendo where people can do walking meditation between sits or they can stand up. Not every day, but every second day we do uh, like a yoga stretching thing as well. The way I teach at the center or the, the structure that we've created there is very self-directed. People are free to do what they want, as long as it's not during times where it's going to disturb other people. Right. Yeah. But um, Primal you know, for the whole yogic thing, I did two years of Hatha yoga, which was helpful for me to be able to sit on a cushion comfortably. And that's about it. I don't really go into all the asanas and stuff like that. That's not really part of what we're doing. We do, we teach it more as just kind of stretching for the body to prepare it for sitting, basically. What does that is different for different people. For me, I've tried different types of yoga and where I've ended up actually, it's completely changed over my lifetime. At one point I was um, doing more traditional yoga, but now I feel like um, my yoga is what grounds me and brings me into my body. And living on the property, I work with wood. We heat our buildings with wood. So you're chopping and, wood. Um, chopping wood and chainsawing, actually. Yeah. To use a chainsaw, you have to be incredibly present and grounded. And it brings me right into my body. You know, my yoga is chainsaw yoga. If I do a few hours of that and then I go sit, it's amazing. To me, it brings me my vata dosha. I tend to be just ethereal and going off, you know, and to be here is important for me. Whereas for, for other people, it's about lightening up. It's about the, the opposite. They want to be breaking up the pattern. So, you know, somebody who is a different dosha, 
a kundalini yoga class might be better because it's like creating all this upward moving energy and so um we try and try and meet people give them the tools that will work for them be careful with that chainsaw i sliced my leg open with one last year because i wasn't being mindful enough like like you just said you need to be mindful and mm-hmm. and i would recommend wearing protective gear too <laughs> yeah um, good advice <laughs> yeah um Paul from San Marcos, California, wants to know, did your Vipassana experience heal your physical ailments? Uh, Yeah. First of all, my idea of what healing is changed dramatically. At the beginning, I just wanted to be able to go back and eat the crappy foods that I was (laughs) feeding my body. And that that to me was what I thought healing was. So my idea of healing completely changed. And I started to tune into what my body actually wanted. And that took many, many years. For me, in that Vipassana experience, like the pancreas area, you know, when you do the body scan, it was completely offline. There was no sensation. And then at a certain point, after quite a bit of meditation, it started to wake up incredible pain, like a sword turning for hours and hours and hours. And and eventually it would start to dissolve as I got into deeper states of absorption. The first moment at those retreats, you know, SN Goenka is always saying, everything arises and passes away. It's all impermanent. And he even says, you probably think your pain is different. You know, yours is going to last forever. And I really did. I really thought this one is never going to go away because this is like a serious bodily problem. It was quite amazing when it actually dissolved the first time. Of course, it came back and I had to dissolve it again and over and over and over. Your type 1 diabetes and your arthritis are gone now? Yes. I have no symptoms. I was told that I had to go on insulin for my, the rest of my life. And, and, and you I, don't. I, I don't. So, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so I'm, I'm symptom-free, but if I went back to eating KFC and drinking lime coolers, I'd be back. <laughs> You'd probably in, get sick again. <laughs> you know, right. I shouldn't say anything bad about KFC. I might get in trouble. Uh, okay, so here's one final question that Irene sent over to me. I'll ask this, and then, then we'll just sort of wrap it up and have you tell us about you know, how people can get in touch and what they can do. This one is, again, from Rez in New York City. He, he wants to know, I've heard that there are many paths to enlightenment, but some point in the wrong direction even while speaking of enlightenment. Don't we need to exercise discretion in an age of the internet? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think skepticism, I would say don't believe anything at all. <laughs> Good point. Like, period. Seriously, do not believe anything and find out within yourself. Whether the Buddha said that, you know, you're quoting the Buddha there. Have you heard that quote? Yeah. Do you know the quote? Basically, it's just... Don't believe anything because somebody said it, even if I say it, the Buddha. But check it out in your own experience and with your yeah. own reason and understanding. Yeah, like I'm, I'm a total skeptic. I hear about, you know, all these different things. And, you know, I, I don't disbelieve anything, but I don't believe anything either. I, I want Scientific attitude. Out. Yeah, verify. See what's true. And I wouldn't believe a word that's coming out of my mouth, you know, <laughs> if, if I hadn't if I hadn't experienced it. So check it out. Do the meditation. If, if there's one thing that will convey to someone, I'd love to get high-level scientists in a room doing this type of meditation. This is where it gets interesting. 
to see the nature of reality, but find out, use the body, use yourself as a laboratory. I think that science and a scientific attitude has a lot to offer spirituality, and I also think that spirituality has a lot to offer science, because there's a lot that science is never going to be able to explore without the spiritual techniques and proper utilization of the ultimate scientific instrument, which is our own mind and, and body. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the Samadhi Center. I'm just going to show the website on the screen here. Um, you have the Samadhi Center up there somewhere between, out in the boonies, somewhere between Toronto and Montreal. Looks like a beautiful place. Yeah, so we're here we almost are at in, the um, center. May 6th, and you tell me there's still half a foot of snow on the ground in the woods. Um, yeah, so deep tell us woods. about that. About the snow or the well, no, not the snow, but about the Samadhi <laughs> yeah. Center. And just, you yeah. know, like if people have become intrigued by listening to this interview, what can mm-hmm. they do, both in terms of just visiting your website? And they, firstly, they can watch your movies, which are yeah, online and yeah. free. They can visit your website. I think there's some meditation techniques they can learn from there. If they want to yeah. go even further, they can come to Canada, right? Yeah, yeah. we do personal retreats. So you, you can just come and um, do a self-directed retreat. Um, basically, you'd be meditating with Tanya and I in the morning, and we're available for instruction. And then the more formal retreats, like the 10-day retreats, are intensive meditation, which you're, you're basically doing meditation most of the day. And, you know, it's broken up by, by different things. We use sound as well. Would you advise that someone who's never really done meditation come in cold and just plunge into something like that? Or do you sure. recommend yeah, that there be some kind of experience first building up no, to it? I think any, anyone... Sometimes having experience, you know, and people who are really holding on to techniques and traditions sometimes have a harder time because they have to let go of that first. So I, I'd say anybody can do it. And it's, a, it's an amazing way to get grounded in a meditation practice. So um, I would say, you know, we, we encourage all levels and beginner to advanced. Great. Well, I'll, I'll link to your website and I'll link to your films and everything and people can get in touch with you and watch the films. And what have you got planned for the future with your reams and reams of notes? What, what, what's what's going to happen with that? <laughs> yeah, so the, the next film, the working title is The Pathless Path. And um, so part two, we kind of left off by saying there's no way to the way. There's no there's no how the mind can grasp you know, so part three, we're going to tell you how. Good. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I always like paradox and contradiction. Yeah. So part three is going to be go- going into the perennial teaching, you know, really looking at what is happening in the different meditation traditions and contemplative traditions and trying to get to the essence of what is happening to strip away the self-structure so that, that the awareness can shine through. Wonderful. Well, I think it's a it's a great service you're doing, and I hope you do it for many, many years to come. Obviously, a lot of people are watching it and getting inspired and benefited by it, so keep it up. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Sure. As anyone still watching realizes and knows, I've been speaking with Daniel Schmidt, who has made the um, Inner Worlds, Outer Worlds, and Samadhi's, Samadhi films. And um, I'll be creating a page for him on BatGap, which links to those things and to his website and everything else. So you can get in touch with Daniel. Um, Next week, I'll be interviewing Michael Pollan, who wrote How to Change Your Mind, and Christopher Bosch, um, who who also wrote a book about psychedelics, um, 
I think it's called Diamonds from Heaven uh, is the subtitle. And uh, I think that is going to be a fascinating discussion. We'll be talking about psychedelics and what these two have experienced. Michael is relatively new to it. Uh, Chris Bosch spent 20 years taking quite high dosage LSD trips in an extremely controlled way. He stopped doing that about 20 years ago, but he did it for 20 years. So check it out. If you'd like to be notified of new interviews when they're posted, sign up on batgap.com. There's a little mailing list thing. If you'd like to listen to these as an audio podcast, there's a tab for that on the site and a number of other things. Just um, explore around and uh, stay tuned. We hope to be doing this like Daniel for many years to come. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So thanks, Daniel. Okay, thanks, Rick. Okay, stay in touch. You too. Bye-bye.